Hello again. Welcome back to the Extra Point Podcast. My name is Todd Stiles, one of the pastors here at First Family Church. Thanks so much for joining us today as the Extra Point Podcast on a regular basis provides extra insight, additional application, and further observation about the text from which we preached on the previous Sunday. And today is Tuesday, August 1st, and we're looking back at uh, Philippians chapter 3, primarily verses 7 to 11. I'm going to take oh, one question uh, that came in regarding uh, the overall section of verses 1 to 11. As I mentioned last week, we're going to be taking questions for probably two or three weeks. And then I want to spend just a little bit of time talking about other views on how we receive Christ's righteousness. I did mention them briefly Sunday, but only by name. I want to give a little more insight into those and where I land on why they are, to a larger or lesser degree, a corruption of the gospel. So, off the bat here, a question came in actually a week ago in regards to verses 1 to 6. We've got a few more still to cover. Here's one more for this week. The questioner asks, is hell emphasized too much when we share the gospel? Hence, we have people being scared and not truly believing in Jesus. Does this lead to more works-based theologies? And I think therein lies the heart of the question. We just spent a good bit of time, not only Sunday, but the previous week, uh, debunking and um, making sure that we do not land anywhere near a works-based theology when it comes to salvation and you know, moving away uh, radically, of course, just making sure that there's nothing in our hearts that are, we're trying to earn anything, but we're simply trusting Jesus. And so she's asking, um, is hell emphasized too much or are people scared into believing and thus they perhaps feel like they've got to perhaps keep that up through what they do? I don't know exactly, but she asked a good question. I would say... Um, to answer the question, most technically, is it possible? Uh, yes, it is possible. Uh, theoretically, that could be happening. I don't have any hard data or research to suggest it is or it isn't. I will give you my opinion. I personally don't think it's happening too much. I don't know that it is or isn't leading to works-based theologies. Maybe, maybe not. Uh, we could probably find a number of things that lead to those. Uh, but my sense, and this is just informal and personal, is we probably don't talk about hell enough. Now, is it true that you could scare people to the degree that then they don't really believe in something, they're just trying to avoid something? Yes, that's possible, and I'm sure that's happened. Uh, we often say this, we don't want to run just from something, we want to run to something. We want to run to Jesus. He's our treasure, and we want to sell everything for the sake of him, like the parable about the man who finds the field and he goes and sells everything he has to purchase it because it's of great value. Yes. But I want to make sure you understand that that things that are of great value are seen and known to be of great value because they have such a contrasting um, purpose to what perhaps we currently know. And so once we see our uh, current condemnation as a lost person, and we uh, are brought into the realization by the Holy Spirit's illumination and conviction that uh, we are lost and without hope, that dire situation, what I've called for years, that eternal predicament, that dilemma, that uncrossable chasm on our own, 
it does become frightening and terrifying to the degree that when we then see the rescue of Jesus, the salvation and forgiveness he offers, I think both uh, work together. In other words, we see the immense value of this one who offers this gift, his righteousness to us. And so we then do run from condemnation and hell and we run to Jesus. So my sense personally is perhaps we don't talk enough about it, but perhaps we should talk about it with respect and in regards and in relation to the great value and treasure of Jesus, the opposite of, you know, the condemnation uh, and terror and, and judgment that we face without him. So um, to make an answer a lot shorter, do I think it's emphasized too much? I don't personally but that doesn't mean that theoretically or even factually or from a data perspective, it could be happening. Perhaps folks are being scared into believing and it's leading to works-based theology. I have no way to know if that's true or false. My personal opinion to this questioner is it's not happening too much, but it may be happening in the wrong way. And on that, we'll just let that be a sufficient answer. It may not be what they're looking for. It may not even be right, but it is my opinion. Let's take another question this week, and then I'll jump to the section on which we want to talk more about other views of righteousness. Here's one more question for this week. How do you witness to those who don't believe in an afterlife? They may strive to be, quote-unquote, good, but they believe death is the end of their existence with no consequences one way or the other. Uh, good question. Let me offer a couple of suggestions here. The first one's going to be a little stark and uh, perhaps not what um, we want to hear. Maybe we'll just kind of keep in the trend of the day. Can we say that? I don't know that it's um, possible uh, to witness to those who don't believe in an afterlife in a presuppositional way. In other words, sometimes much of our witnessing is to those who do hold to some basic tenets of existence. Uh, they may not believe that Christ is the only way, that God offers salvation only in Jesus, but they do have this sense that there is a God. He's revealed in the Bible. They just choose not to believe it. Uh, there's presuppositions they hold to like other people. And so we start there. It's called presuppositional, either debating or arguing or witnessing. Uh, but more and more, we find that that's a very um, large assumption that many people just don't even hold to basic presuppositions that perhaps 50 years ago citizens held to. Now, uh, that's rarely true. And so it is very difficult to begin at that point with someone who doesn't believe in the afterlife or holds no view about anything um, Christian at all. And so I would say you'd have to start even before that if you're going to witness to them. And I would say that that's back in uh, talking about the existence of God and some of the more basic um, tenets or beliefs, that's why I tend to say it's uh, not, I'm not sure how you would witness to someone like that until you back the truck up and deal with those issues first. Now, that is witnessing, admittedly, but it's not witnessing in the sense of like just simply going straight to the gospel with someone who's curious about their life and has questions. This is kind of a, a you know, going back further and dealing with more fundamental, what we'd call presuppositional issues. Uh, but on another front, I would say this, 
if that conversation were to get going about the afterlife and they are striving to be good, I think you have a wonderful opportunity there to ask questions which will help their fallacies surface. Now, I would bring in 1 Corinthians 15, but remember, if someone doesn't even believe the Bible or hold that it's you know, has truth. And again, you're arguing for no reason here. You're witnessing without any type of like foundation from which you can both converse. But 1 Corinthians 15 does say that if there's no resurrection, uh, then those of us who are trying to be good, he's speaking there of, of course, Christians, we are above all to be most pitied. So Paul actually says this, if there is no afterlife, if there is nothing at all except just what we do here on this earth, then being good really is a waste of time. We should actually party hardy. We should live it up, right? Eat, drink, and be merry. I mean, it makes no difference um, to live by some kind of moral standard if at the end of the day, we all simply stay as dust. And so you could bring in that logical fallacy that they hold to, but remember, if they don't believe the Bible, you're, you simply have to argue from perhaps a, a reason or logic point of view as opposed to a biblical point of view. And perhaps that may be the best answer here is to say that those who don't believe in an afterlife or those who don't hold to any kind of presuppositional um, uh, beliefs, perhaps your best bet there is to start with um, thinking through logical issues and then moving to biblical issues. Now, this isn't to say that the gospel doesn't open eyes, so I would always be quick to share Scripture, uh, talk about the Bible, um, share the gospel, even in one or two sentences, because it's the power of Christ and salvation. It's the seed that, when planted, brings forth fruit, and so never hesitate from sharing the Scriptures, all right? We're not saying that at all. Just realize that sometimes in these conversations, people do um, have stances that are well um, they're further back than maybe you realize. And so logic can help you in addition, perhaps, to, uh, of course, always being willing to share the biblical truth and the gospel. And then lastly, let me just simply bring a little further insight into two things I mentioned Sunday. You know, we talked about how we receive the righteousness of Christ. It is imputed to us. That's the actual technical word that we use and that we believe uh, best defines how we receive the righteousness of Christ. It's imputed to us, and of course, we understand that what was imputed to Christ was our sin. So often you hear about double imputation. It's Christ taking our sin and us receiving Christ's righteousness. This, of course, as the text said to us and says to us, it is from God through faith in Christ. So it's a gift received by faith. It's all the work of God in giving this to us. We don't earn it. We don't achieve it. We simply receive it. Uh, And so this is called imputed righteousness. It does settle our standing and position before God forever. It is an issue of justification and it settles our standing. We are declared righteous. Uh, Romans 8 would say there's no condemnation. And this is because of the imputed righteousness of Christ from God to all who believe. And the other ways in which Christ's uh, righteousness is, and I'm going to use the word here, given or um, experienced, um, some say it's imparted to us. And this would be a mixture of... Um, of both 
imputed righteousness and then what they would call imparted righteousness. This was what Wesley held to. I'd say to you, there are parts of this that we would say yes to. For instance, that the Holy Spirit is imparted and given to us, and He is what fuels and empowers the works we do. But there's also aspects of imparted righteousness that um, that lead us to still incorporating works into how God sees us. For instance, uh, this view would hold to the fact that as we do these Spirit-empowered works, then God begins to see us in an increasingly justifying position that perhaps our state of innocence, um, of not being guilty, of being declared righteous before the Lord uh, because of Christ, that that isn't fully set at the moment we're saved, but it increases. And of course, Wesley held that there would be a place even on the earth where you could reach, uh, you know, perfection, uh, sinless perfection. This is what he felt was the end goal of sanctification. He felt you could reach that on the earth. This was done through works, and he would say, and even Methodists today say this, uh, at least certain branches, that these are empowered by the Holy Spirit, but they would also say that this is what God uses in addition to Christ's work to see you as righteous and holy. Is it that is your effort and your trying and your pursuit of these good works? And so I I disagree with those who hold to imparted righteousness because I think it's an addendum. Uh, it's an addition. And um, I think that salvation uh, rests solely and wholly on the work of Christ and God imputing his righteousness to us. So that's one view. It's typically the view the Methodists take or those perhaps in the Wesleyan tradition. It's called imparted righteousness the other is infused righteousness. This would be the one that the uh, that Catholicism holds to. It's the word they use. It has a similar ring to it, except they would say that um, that your righteous standing before God is um, is infused um, through your works, and so it's a gradual type of. Um, a position that you grow into, which is one of the reasons that if you die with unconfessed sin, of course, then there's purgatory or what in older days was often known as limbo. And then others would have to work and provide things to get you out of that place and to where you were then seen as righteous again and could earn your way to heaven. Uh, so infused righteousness uh, is just perhaps a, um, you know, a, a different way to say that you earn your way there by what you do. And so I don't hold to that, don't see that. Some of these words, uh, because they're hard to define and we don't hear them much, we're not sure what they mean when we hear them. So we can be slow uh, and we can hesitate in saying, I don't believe that. But just understand, infused righteousness really is a, a Catholic term. And it simply means that over time through our works, we bring our effort to the equation of Christ's work, and so it works together to progressively uh, give us a justified standing before God, hopefully one that when we die, we have no one confess sin, and we can experience, you know, Christ's presence. So I don't hold to that. Just be aware, and our church doesn't land there. It's not biblical. Uh, I wouldn't say that imparted or infused righteousness has biblical grounds to stand on. Again, to a larger or lesser degree, um, uh, they they um, would disagree and would uh, contradict what I believe the Bible teaches as 
the way in which we receive the righteousness of Christ. And that is as a gift from God through faith in Christ. That's salvation. And that's where our genuine joy comes from. So I hope that brings a little more insight into what I think Philippians 3 teaches there, especially verses 7 to 11. It's the imputed righteousness of Christ given as a gift from God through faith to all who believe, and that imparted or infused righteousness simply leads people astray and convolutes, convolutes, corrupts, and pollutes the true doctrine of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone.